1,000 better stories. You're listening to 1,000 Better Stories, the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network's podcast sharing stories of community-led climate action in Scotland to help us all imagine the better and fairer future and transform what we think is possible. Hello, it's Kashka, your story weaver. Today we have a fantastic, immersive story from Cathy Kamleitner. She reports on her summer visit to the Wild Seas Weekend in Argyle and the Sea Wilding Project, which is fast becoming a template for community-led marine regeneration efforts around Scotland's coastline. This story was funded through our mini-grant programme. Drop us a line on stories at scan.scot if you have a story to share and are considering applying for one. Cathy's publishing sister, Sea Wilding Story, on her own podcast, Wild for Scotland, this week. I'd highly recommend you have a listen. You might also want to check out uh, the rest of her season as she covers inspiring nature regeneration projects across the country. But now, without further ado, let me hand you over to Cathy on her Sea Wilding journey. First time I snorkelled through a seagrass meadow was in a quiet corner of a sea loch near the village of Tibialich. I was one of 11 people participating in the snorkelling artist residency hosted by the Argyle Hope Spot. The seagrass meadow I saw that day was a bustling hub of biodiversity. Deep black brittle stars wrapped their lanky arms around the blades of seagrass or long strings of sea spaghetti. Scallop shells littered the seafloor. Many were empty and long abandoned by the creatures that built them. But I also spotted living scallops as they sifted water through the narrow opening between their shells. On their outside, pink serpulid worms peeked out of their white tubes, spreading their fan-shaped crowns towards me. But as I moved closer, they noticed my presence. The worms closed the lids at the end of their tubes, and the scallops sealed their shells shut. And in an instant, life was hidden from my sight. A little further, I spotted a green shore crab scuttling away and hiding beneath a tumble of seaweed. On the tips of the seagrass, there were juvenile snicklock anemones, their green tentacles blending in with the fresh green of the meadows. But their purple tips give them away as they swayed from side to side in the movement of the sea. And I knew that everywhere around me, magnificent creatures were hiding in the thicket of the seagrass, whether I could see them or not. Snorkeling in this vibrant habitat in Argyll was the beginning of my learning journey about seagrass meadows and the benefits they bring to coastal ecosystems underwater and above the surface. I learned that they were once much more abundant in Scottish waters. Research estimates that we've lost about 90% of Scotland's seagrass meadows. But in places where they are given a chance to recover, they can inspire new hope in the face of the climate crisis. Back in August, this journey of mine took me to the village of Artfern, some 20 miles north from where I first encountered seagrass meadows. 
Here, on the shores of Loch Creignish, a local community-led marine restoration project called Sea Wilding is working to bring seagrass meadows and native oyster beds back to the rugged Argyle coastline. I'm here to attend the Wild Seas Weekend, a two-day event that showcases some of the work being done in this region by Sea Wilding and other nature conservation charities and organisations. The village hall is bustling and across the two days I meet many people who are passionate about the sea and the coast. I speak with students who research the effects of marine sound pollution and let a volunteer show me a bit of seagrass under a microscope. I look at the rubber model of a flapper skate that covers an entire table and drop my jaw as I find out that it's actually life-size. I speak to folks who restore coastal oak woods and watch as a handful of oysters clean the muddy seawater inside a tank over the course of a day. I join guided snorkel and paddleboarding sessions to see the seagrass meadows up close and follow Sea Wilding founder Danny Renton and several volunteers to the shoreline at low tide to hear about their native oyster release programme and their survey strategies. At the end of the first day of the festival, I sit down with Philip Price, who's the communications manager for Sea Wilding. I ask him how Sea Wilding grew out of the local community and how their work in turn impacts the people who live and work in this area. So that's a very good question. So when we say it's a community-led charity, it's because it's been built from the community and it employs the community. We're, we're all, we all live here and we've all started working for Seawalding. But how that came about. So um, about eight years ago, we started an organisation called Cromach, which is the Craignish Restoration of Marine and Coastal Habitat. And basically what that did is it gave the community a voice on how we manage our inshore waters. Because prior to a lot of like-minded people doing this is that the only people that were giving voice to the local community in terms of how we manage our inshore waters were the commercial operations so your fish farmers your your um, fishermen your creelers now they should have a voice but they certainly shouldn't be the only voice and for a long time they were the only voice influencing political decisions uh, and that's led to a really badly designed management system for our inshore waters and that has resulted to catastrophic declines in virtually all our commercial fish species. So we we came up with Cromach as an as a antidote to that, to say, listen, we live by the sea, we work in the sea, we're not a commercial operation in terms of exploiting the sea, but we should still have a say in how our sea, because I'm swimming in the sea every day, I take my kids in the sea every day, I would like to have a say in how my home is run. The problem with that is we ended up doing, and it's very important work, but we end up doing lots of consultations um, lots of talking to people, lots of saying, no, we don't think that's a good idea. We don't want another fish farm. We don't want dredgers to come into our loch. Um, and that's fine, and it's important, and it gets the conversation going, and then somebody has to take a balanced decision, you know, balancing up the economic interest, the, the jobs, and the, the impact on the environment. The problem with you as a volunteer doing that is it's very hard to see the light at the end of that tunnel. And there is light at the end of that tunnel, I'm sure of it, but we needed something more positive than that. We needed to kind of have something that we could really get our teeth into and go, we are making a difference. And that's why we wanted to start seawalding. So one of our community decided to uh, trial an oyster uh, restoration project, got a bit of funding. That was Danny, our CEO. Uh, when that was successful, he then came up with the 
branding, sea welding. And we separated from Cromwell because Cromwell was just an, a, a group. Uh, and we and he created a, a skill, a charity, which meant we get proper funding, employ people. We were all doing voluntary work for Sea Wilding when it started out, and then gradually we got some part-time work, and we gave up our previous businesses and jobs, uh, and become full-time now. That's fantastic, and I think with what you're saying about being part of that decision-making process, and even though you don't have an immediate or direct commercial interest in it, you should still be part of that conversation because it's your home. Coastal communities are obviously, especially in Scotland, but also around the world, affected by climate change in a different way than um, people who live in the cities that are maybe further away from the sea or higher up um, in the mountains as well. Because, of course, you notice the sea level rising way before we will um, a bit further away. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why it's also so important for coastal communities to be actively engaged in that. Is there anything you would add? Like, Why is it so important for coastal communities to be involved in that conversation. Well, you, you, what you said, I couldn't say any better, so I completely agree with that. But also, we have to pick up the pieces. You know, we're the one on the beach picking up all the rubbish from the fish farm and the and the gloves that are thrown over the side from fishing vessels. Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have fishing. I'm not saying that at all. But, you know, often communities are left to, to, to mop up. Um, you know, if, if there's a toxic algae bloom in the lock, it's our pets that are going to suffer, our dogs that go in the water, it's our kids that are splashing around in it. If I run a tourism business or I have a self-catering accommodation or I run a hotel and there's nothing for anyone to see when they come up and visit because all the dolphins have disappeared because they're using uh, acoustic deterrents, then, or there's no fish for them to eat, that has direct impact on our on our lives. So we have to have a say, otherwise coastal communities will break down because the fishermen and and the the commercial interests of the sea are in decline because they've overfished it we don't have the fish stocks we used to because they didn't manage it correctly so it has to be done in a different way and the only way you're going to get done in a different way is not by relying on the same voices to tell you how to do it so you need new voices and, and that's why i think it's absolutely vital communities have a voice in how their home is being looked after that's a great way to put it and probably something that could be said about many things yeah. in the world um, in, in, in just the right way. Um, but let's move on from that. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit why seagrass? What makes seagrass so important and what role does it play within Scotland? So seagrass is one of these incredible sort of keystone species, they call it. Basically, just means it's really important for a whole load of other animals to survive and thrive. And why is that? Well, there's a couple of things going on there. So if you can imagine the seabed is this sandy bottom, it's very flat and it doesn't have very much structure. So to enable animals to get shelter or to get food or for things to grow on things, um, you need you need structure, particularly in the sea, actually. That's why you always get loads of life around um, uh, pontoons or boats or whatever. Um so by planting seagrass, you create this incredible 3D structure in an otherwise sandy-based seabed. But the other thing seagrass does is it draws carbon in from the atmosphere and, and sequests it into the sediment. So you've got the bonus of more habitat for loads of different species, including lots of um, juvenile commercial fish species, and you have uh, this kind of carbon-sucking ability as well. And seagrass in Scotland, then, specifically... Is there a lot of it around? Um, I assume that a lot of it has been lost as well. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing the work that you yeah, do. Yeah, so, so we think, and the science is kind of um, 
has led us to this this thinking that we think that around the coast of the UK, roughly 95% of the seagrass has been lost. Some people think it's between 60 and 95%, but certainly when we've surveyed the seabed here to identify how much seagrass we could have in terms of suitable sediment and depth, uh, and we've compared it to what seagrass we do have, we find we're about 5% of what we could have. Um, and that is why we're really... Uh, passionate about trying to improve that five percent to a lot more yeah and so you've mentioned dredging as one of the things that mm. might damage seagrass meadows is there anything else that you think has happened and why we now have so much less sea meadows yeah so so um so dredging there's lots of different types of dredging you can dredge to clear rivers dredge for scallops the, the problem with dredging for scallops it doesn't often clear the seagrass out but it creates these plumes of sediment that smothers seagrass and makes it vulnerable to disease so that's one problem but then in some places they specifically dredge the seagrass to clean the beaches and make it nicer for people to go in the water so that those are the pressures that have resulted in seagrass disappearing the other thing is uh, anchorages yacht centers like like we're sitting in front of here um pollution events these all weaken the seagrass and then they become vulnerable to disease which can wipe out big, large chunks of seagrass uh, bed. So it's probably a massive variety of different things. And now let's move on to the other species you work with, the native oysters. Again, can you explain what they are and why they're so important? So it's a very similar story there. So so the native oyster is a mollusk, essentially a snail with a with a, a slightly different shell. Um, and, and it's very easy to dismiss that as a, as a snail. But actually, and the same with people that study snails, when you get into these animals, they're so fascinating. The fact that this little blobby thing can create a shell that's totally bomb-proof is, is pretty incredible. But they do the same thing as seagrass. They create structure in an environment that would be lacking structure otherwise. So oysters like to grow in oysters. So if you've got a really healthy reef, what happens is the baby oysters grow in the adult oysters. They become adults. So you've then got two levels. And then the next generation grow in that. So you've got three levels. You end up having multiple levels of oysters, which allows lots of nooks and crannies and surface area for all sorts of animals to, to live and exist in. So from that perspective, oysters are incredible. Um, but then they do this other thing that the seagrass doesn't do is, and they filter the water, they clean the water, they take, they take nutrients out of the water and allow the, the water to be clearer. And actually we find that has an, a nice benefit for the seagrass because it lets more light in uh, and hopefully will benefit our seagrass in the future too. So it's really about restoring an ecosystem, not just individual species. Yeah. So when you're a person from Homo sapien, uh, we're very good at trying to concentrate on one thing at a time. And unfortunately, ecosystems just don't work like that. And we're only learning that now. So instead of conserving a beetle or conserving a tiger, you've got to think ecosystem level now. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're restoring the seagrass and the oysters, because we believe that's the bedrock of an ecosystem. Rather than saying, right, we want to restore herring or juvenile cod, it's like, well, we're hoping they'll do that themselves once we've built the foundation for where they can have their young and, and rear their young. Absolutely. Oh, that makes so much sense. And um, we've seen today in the village hall an example of how efficient oysters yeah. are at cleaning water. You had a tank set up with a handful of oysters chucked in, basically, and some seagrass as well. And when I arrived in the morning, you could barely see anything in it because the water was so mucky and silty, I guess. And now, as we left, it was completely clear and you could just see every detail. And that's all the oysters, right? Yes, exactly what they're doing. And that, so you think, so you think, 
This is really interesting. So that's actually the first time I've seen that demonstration done, even though I've been working for seawalding now for a couple of years. And uh, I've read about it and, and I knew they did that. But to actually see it is mind-blowing. And then you then you think about the world that we live in now compared to the world we could live in. So the world we live in now, we have maybe half a million oysters around the, the whole country, maybe. I don't know, in little pockets of population. Compare that to two or three hundred years ago, we would have had billions of oysters literally covering our shorelines. Think about how much of that tank has been cleaned in just a couple of hours. They're doing that to our entire ocean. So the clarity of the water back then must have been phenomenal. And it, and it, and I think that's what drives us forward is like imagining this pristine, almost utopian sea that we can have again if we just change a few things and fix a few things. That's amazing. And it's it's so inspiring to think it's it, it is about that big picture thinking and that future vision, but it is within reach. It's oh, not yeah. just something that happens in yeah. three hundred years. Yeah, and I think that's 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 one of the nice things about the sea particularly. So on land your time scales for regeneration can be quite long, but we're finding in the sea that you can get a big difference, I think a little bit quicker. So our seagrass meadows, we think five to ten years we can see some really big improvements. Even in a year, we've seen a doubling in our, in our biodiversity in our in our restored seagrass compared to the mud, um, and the same with same with the oysters. We're seeing sort of forty to fifty percent increase in biodiversity where we've got oysters. And, and yeah, these are tiny little areas at the moment, but the benefits happen very quickly in the sea because it's an interconnected habitat. So it's yeah. properly exciting. And it's almost like running a little experiment in one small area and then being able to think about okay how do you then scale that so that's exactly what where sea wilding are at the moment so we all want to go landscape scale but at the moment we can't put our finger on the right methodology for doing that because we'll have these questions in our mind well does it is it better to put an oyster down at 10 grams or 20 grams or 30 grams is it better to plant seagrass by using rhizome transplanting which is the roots or is it better to do seeds in bagters we just don't know the answers to that yet so at the moment we're conducting huge experiments um, which is also re restoring habitat at the same time but we're just trying to monitor which is the most successful of that habitat restoration and then we can push the button and go right now we can go for some really big funds to make this happen on a landscape scale incredible and so do you want to walk me in basic uh, simple to understand ways through the process of restoring a seagrass meadow what's required and what steps do you have to take for that so the start off point is surveying so you 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 survey an area to see if you've got any existing seagrass and to see if the seabed is suitable for seagrass restoration that's your first two steps then you're going to get permission from nature scott because you might be interacting with an existing seagrass bed which is protected uh, and you're going to come with a fairly robust plan on how you're going to do that restoration Then it gets interesting. What is the best way of doing that restoration? We don't actually know yet, but we're trialing various methods. One method is to go out at exactly this time of year, and we're sort of mid-August now, and collect seed from this plant before it's fallen off the plant. So you've got to get that timing pretty good. You then put those seeds into a tank, allow them to fall from the plant that you've harvested in the tank, and then you sweep them seeds up. You store them seeds till it's time to plant them, which we think is probably either October or the spring. We're not sure. We're experimenting with both. And then you either plant the seed directly into the seabed or you put it in little bags that protects the seed from predation or from being washed away and then put the bags on the seabed and they rot away, allowing the germinating plant to come through. Or, because that's using seed, 
The other way of doing it is going into the seagrass. You can do this at any time of year. You can harvest individual plants under license from Nature Scott, and then you plant those individual plants out on the sediment. And with the hope that what happens is the rhizomes have survived that process, they then, because they kind of have been slightly stressed by it, they think, God, I need to grow now. This is this is bad news. We need to grow. So it sort of sets off a, a super growth pattern that allows the rhizomes to interconnect and put shoots up in the gaps so you then get an infill in the meadow and you get hopefully a proper seagrass meadow resulting from the individual plants that you put out. So when you're in a seagrass meadow, does that mean that one plant actually has multiple shoots or is it individual plants that you're seeing? So um, it can vary. Sometimes you've got one shoot, one rhizome, one root system that can have 10 or 15 plants coming off it. Sometimes you've got one plant and one root. It can really vary. But what you get when you put your hand into a seagrass meadow and you're trying to dig out a root is this massive interconnected root system. It's so wonderful. And then you start thinking, oh, hold on a minute. What's one of the biggest problems we have with uh, the ocean, the, the sort of coastal communities around here? And a lot of it, not so much here, but certainly down south, is coastal erosion. So if you put this huge network of roots into this very fine sediment, it locks it all into place. So it's going to be a massive boon for coastal erosion. So we think it's another huge advantage of, of restoring seagrass. Um, can you tell me a bit or describe some of the challenges that you face in your work? And that could be practical challenges in the water or maybe more um, challenges in, in the face of other people being part of that conversation and, and how decisions are being made. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a really good question. The challenges sort of vary on a, on a daily basis almost. But uh, the, the main challenges we face, I think, from a practical point of view is, like we were discussing before, is figuring out the best way of doing stuff and having to work at seagrass time or oyster time. If we trial a seagrass thing, we have to wait 18 months to see it works. It's just what we have to do. And then if we trial something one year and it's super hot and we trial something the next year and it's super cold, then that skewers our learnings quite heavily. So we're we're trying to create that fine balance of doing and learning at the same time because we can't wait till the science is perfect. But we need to rely on the science to make sure we get the best methodology. So we have to both do and learn. And that's the approach we're taking. But but the, the main challenge is that, like I said, that time scale that you have to work at. In terms of external influences, I think still it's changing now, but I think at a regulatory level the concept of rewilding and rebuilding habitats rather than conserving habitats still hasn't fully sunk in to the point of where they're like yeah i get this let's do this we still have to play the convincing game on oyster restoration rather than just conserving a wee pocket of oysters there uh, and we still have to play a little bit of a game on the well we've got seagrass why do we need to put any more in well yeah because it's not very really much and we think we need to help it that is changing and within a lot of the kind of regulatory organizations there's some really good people doing good work uh, who are super supportive of what we do particularly but that has been a little bit of a challenge in the past and then going forward at the moment most of our work doesn't in come in conflict with any commercial interest going on in the loch however at some point in the future that may happen so we're going to have to maybe persuade or come up with compromises with people who have commercial interest to try and change either what we do or what they do so we can both flourish in the loch. How that happens, we won't know yet, but that will happen at some point. The future will tell, I guess. 
you already mentioned, you know, that there's a few different local groups and obviously Sea Wilding has grown out of another local group as well. How do you engage with different organisations and groups, community-led or otherwise, uh, in the local area? And um, I'm thinking, for example, the, the Friends of the Sound of Jura yeah. or the Argyle Hope Spot, who are two organisations I personally have made experiences with. So how does that kind of network so, so, the, so the Argyle Hope Spot's interesting because that's a kind of label that we all live under. So we are we are Argyle Hope Spot, Friends of the Sound of Jura Argyle Hope Spot. It, co- it governs our whole area and it's a label we all fully believe in and get behind because we're living in an environment that isn't good as it could be, but it has hope that it could be a lot better. So that's kind of the basis of the Hope Spot. So in terms of communicating with other organisations like ourselves, then the... Uh, the easiest way to do it is through this wonderful thing that's been set up that help us set up actually, which is the Coastal Community Network. And they are run to support and connect individual community groups around the country. So we have a bigger voice and we have uh, shared learnings. We have, um, you know, all the way down to practical phone calls where you can phone somebody from a different group and go, well, you've done seagrass, how did you do that? Or um, how do you set up a website? Where did you get that information? Or we've got a fish farm application. How do we how do we um, get through that and, and find out if it's a good or bad one or whatever? So the Coastal Community Network, the CCN, has been vital for that. And beyond kind of the local area or beyond the maybe the grassroots level as well, how do you engage with, say, local councils or, or yeah. businesses with commercial interests or even, you know, government bodies? Uh, I'm thinking of Nature Scott and, yeah. and things like that. So, how does so that function? So be, being part of CCN allows us access to these government bodies. So that's that's our route into to that. We're also part of the Scottish Rewilding Alliance. Um, so that's another way into lobbying politicians we've also developed some personal relationships with, with particularly the green msps like harry and burgess who are super uh, excited by what's happening here and want to help us and support us as best they can which is very lovely in terms of the commercial conversations one of the routes we're going down at the moment as a community so this is not sea wilding but this is more a chroma thing is to um try and create a demonstration and research marine protected area in loch Ragnish. And that gives us a mechanism because we have to engage all the stakeholders, all the commercial interests in the loch to get that through. And we have to go to them and say, this is our plan to improve the health of the loch. Are you on board? And if they say yes, then we have to come up with some projects that we can work on together that will hopefully improve the health of the loch. So that's that's probably the main mechanism for the local commercial and business interests that we're using to kind of build those relationships to try and improve the loch. A, a, a very quick example is we're working with the Ardfern Yacht Centre to help communicate where the seagrass beds are to people sailing in their yachts so they don't anchor in their seagrass. So it's a very simple example of working with a, a local business. That's brilliant. And I, I like how you explain or, or describe you know, on the one hand, it is about local community getting involved and not just having these decisions made top down. But on the other hand, you kind of still have to play by the rules um, and, and play the game a little bit and then use the mechanisms that exist to your benefit and, and in new and different ways. And, and yeah, that's that's really inspiring. And can you talk a bit more about the networking aspect that you do with other community groups or other charities as well? And maybe some of the training you deliver or, um, yeah. 
So one of the ways we'd like to see sea welding expand as a either as a as a charity, but but mainly to see our what the work we're doing, see oysters, seagrass, habitat restoration expanding, is to motivate, to train, to help other communities to do this themselves. And as part of that, we run training weekends um, every year, inviting other communities here so they can learn firsthand how we're doing what we're doing, the mistakes we've made, uh, the successes we've had, and then hopefully they can build similar projects in their own communities CCN are very good at facilitating a lot of this as well so they do monthly calls and restoration that we can all attend and share best practice again share mistakes they run a big event every two years where we all go to called Gartmore um, that allows us to network there to, to have presentations either give presentations or receive presentations about particular successes or failures or whatever so that networking is is working very very well. The main problem we have as a, as a community force is capacity. The mistake we th- probably made a little bit at the beginning is believing that the community can just do this voluntarily. You can't. The community can do it, and communities all around Scotland can do it, but they have to be supported with providing jobs to do that. Otherwise, you get burned out very very quickly. Uh, and we found that with sea welding. You know, I'm about the most passionate person in the world about rewilding. And I was holding down a job, got a family of three kids, trying to volunteer for sea welding. It, it was, it got to the point where it wasn't fun. Uh, and I still, still kept doing it because it's important. But you need to get paid people in these roles that allow them to really drive this stuff forward. And, and and it's okay to enjoy something you get paid for. I think we've got this weird attitude in Britain where we need to work really hard and be really miserable working. It's like, well, surely if you're lucky enough, and I am, understand my privilege, I have huge privilege, um, but if you're lucky enough to have a job that's fun, that's a good thing. Exactly. <laughs> Not a bad thing. Yeah, and then being able to harness your passion and your expertise and your you know in, innovation as well mm. into something that, will change the world is is amazing yeah, and no, being paid for it yeah, we're how, very lucky. how fantastic very lucky i have to say we are very lucky <laughs> there are obviously a lot of restoration projects not just seagrass but including seagrass as well in other places in scotland and it seems like they're all kind of doing it slightly in different ways there's some that are led by national agencies some like yourselves led by grassroots community groups can you maybe comment on the advantages and disadvantages of your process or your your approach and and where you think you might be able to learn something from how it's done elsewhere so i think the 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 advantages of of being this kind of community startup if you like is that for instance very it can be a very simple thing if i want to go down down to the water there and I have to walk through that field I know I speak to Sandy Ritchie that's who owns that field like I don't have to ask anybody I don't have to get their permission I can just give them a call or whatsapp them and go can, can I go down your field and um, put a you know a weed cage out of oysters and do a trial there and you would be like yeah no worries um, whereas if you're an agency coming in you have to get permission you have to figure out who owns that field you have to ask around and they'll be like oh who are you coming in and doing this you haven't built up that relationship with everybody in the community that you haven't built up that trust um, so that's a huge advantage and then you know we've got a really huge mixed skill set we're not employed to do a certain thing we've come to this because we want to make something happen so if we're um, if we're having to fix up the, the boat shed we don't have to get a builder and we've got the skills within the team to do that our marine scientist happens to be a tree surgeon so he can top some of the trees you know so you know west coast community you tend to find multi-skilled people um, which means you can just get stuff done quicker 
then we don't have a massive decision tree to go up and down. So if we want to change a poster, I do a lot of the communication stuff and the, and the, and the um, website stuff. And I'll just check with one person. Do you think this is all right? Yeah, it's all right. Well, job done. Um, whereas if we're a part of a big organization, then if I want to change the website, I have to go to the web designer that's been employed by the big organization. And then I have to check with the manager of both the web design and of my manager. And then I have to get permission from all of those to change a couple of words. So that's like two weeks work to do something I could maybe done in five minutes. So we're really efficient, um, with money and we're really quick to do stuff. The, The disadvantage I would say of our approach is that we have to create all our own resources so that obviously takes a bit of time uh, and getting access to big funds to really push this forward you need a track record to do that you're not going to be given multi-million pound projects if you're just a wee startup with a few schnees and hard fern that are looking to get a project up and running and chucked a few oysters in and thought whoa what's this so we've had to build up that kind of trust and track record with the wider funding community which we're starting to do now but if you're WWF let's say you have that track record you know you're a trusted uh, funded organization so if you're saying well give us a million pounds and we'll deliver this project they'll probably go well you've done it before yeah let's let's see you do it so you know there are advantages and disadvantages absolutely there's a question on the back of my mind and I kind of have two ways of, of, of asking you one is is there anything and if yes, and I hope your answer is yes, <laughs> what gives you hope? Uh, yes, actually, lots gives me hope. I think, so bigger picture stuff, we have this climate crisis, we have this bio, um, biodiversity crisis. Uh, and on one hand, you could think, oh no, you know, we're maybe looking at human extinction if we don't sort this out. But the other hand is if we do sort this out, what is it going to look like? It's going to look incredible. We're going to have very low cost energy. We're going to have beautiful air quality. We're going to have abundant wildlife. We're going to have farming systems that work with nature for people and for wildlife. This is a utopian vision. And it's not like we could have it. We have to have it to survive. And actually, for some reason, that gives me huge amounts of hope because we're either not going to succeed and go extinct or we're going to succeed and have this incredible world that we're going to have forged for our generation, possibly, definitely for the future generations. So in terms of are we going to be a good ancestor for them, then we have to be. And if we achieve that, then we'll be a brilliant ancestor for future generations. So it's going to be super exciting. So bigger picture stuff, that gives me real hope. On the local level, I've got real hope too because we did a survey recently and it turned out the vast majority of the local population care about their lock and wanted to see it better. I wanted to see it healthier. And that's enabled us to go down this deal on our MPA that we were talking about earlier, the, the research marine protected area. So that's that's a game changer. People didn't have that care years ago. You know, they're either too hard at work just surviving or it just wasn't in their sphere of knowledge or, or thinking or whatever it was. Then you go and swim in seagrass and you're like, imagine there being more of this stuff. It's so awesome. And then you watch those oysters clean that tank out and you're like, the sea could be like this. You know what I mean? So if we can achieve even half of what we need to, the world's going to be a very wonderful place. So yeah, definitely full of hope. That's amazing. And you've almost answered my second way of asking this question. And that would be if you could paint me a picture of what the world would look like the way you envision it yeah. um, being able to do all these things and I think that was 
that was yeah. pretty much what you did yeah, there. Yeah. So <laughs> so I'll give you a wee, another wee analogy you might find quite useful. There's a, there's a, uh, we're doing these interviews with people about what the loch used to be like. And the amount of life in here is just used to be phenomenal. And there's a wildlife boat trip that would go out of Haven, which is just over the other side of the peninsula. And he would go out of here. And he had to go at five knots because there were so many seabirds around his boat, he would have killed them if he didn't go that slowly. Just hundreds, thousands, as far as the eye could see. They don't exist now. They've gone. There's no food for them. So, yeah, what does it look like in the future? Well, I go out my boat. I can't go five knots because I'm going to crush these millions of seabirds. And then there's pods of dolphins. There's huge populations of orcas. There's great whales back on our shoreline. Um, there's flapper skate the size of three-metre wingspans flying around the loch. That's what the future looks like. So the Wild Seas weekend takes place, obviously, once a year, hopefully again in the future as well. What are other ways people can get involved with sea wilding? Good question. We have um, various volunteer days throughout the year, which are on our website, so you can sign up to any of that. Um, For people that live locally, we have other things that are a bit more tide dependent or a bit more um, need a bit more training. So like monitoring our oysters, we can get involved with that. You can always give us all your hard-earned cash. That's always good. So you can do a bit of that. And actually just, you know, a lot of what's nice about what we do and, and what's really important is that if the message is shared... A, it gives us validation, which helps us f- fundraise for, from big funders like, like government funding. Um, but also it just gets that message out there that the sea is an incredible place and we need to really love it. It needs our love. It really needs it now. So if that's all you can do is just look at what we do and share it and, and, and come and learn a little bit about it and, and talk to your friends about, about the pressures and the, and the wonderfulness of it and, and what needs to change in it, then that's a good thing to do. Brilliant. We'll put all the links in the show notes to the website, where to donate, where to find out about upcoming events and social media as well. I do encourage people to follow because, yeah, like I said, the visual images and videos you share with sea welding is, yeah, it, it, it makes it really approachable and, and relatable, even though I live a, quite a good distance from the sea. So it's quite nice to see that as a reminder and and be immersed in it that way. Is there anything else you would like to give listeners on the way, whether it is about the future or sea wilding, the work you do, or anything else? Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's just to hold on to that hope. um, Somebody today actually mentioned to me that the best reason for hope is it gives us the drive to take action. And we need to take action, but if we do take action, it's going to be really good. So let's just, yeah, use that brilliant thank you so much for taking the time no problem thank you in just two days i learned so much about rewilding our seas why it is important how it might be done and why it is crucial that local communities are at the forefront of this movement we will be sharing lots of resources to learn more about seagrass in the show notes of this episode first and foremost you'll find the links to connect with sea wilding how you can join them as a volunteer and other ways to support their work. You'll also find links to other community-led initiatives on the coast of Argyll, a few articles and videos you might find interesting, and other podcast episodes about seagrass. One of them is tomorrow's episode of my own podcast, Wild for Scotland. It's called All That Could Be, and takes you on an immersive journey on Loch Craignish. I'm taking you out on the paddleboard to learn about native oysters, We'll hear more from Philip about the creatures that live in the seagrass and we'll go snorkelling to encounter some of them. You can find Wild for Scotland 
wherever you listen to this podcast right now. Seagrass meadows are not just something pretty to look at if you're fortunate enough to snorkel or paddle past one. They can do so much for our climate resilience and can help us take hopeful, solutions-led approaches to dealing with the biodiversity crisis. In times where it is easy to feel disconnected from the people and powers that seem to be setting the agenda at the top, projects like sea wilding bring the conversation back to the ground level and invite us to participate. And I hope that listening to this episode has inspired you to do just that. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and share it with others. It'll really help us reach a wider audience. If something exciting is happening in your own community, be sure to let us know so that we can help you tell your own story. You can drop our story weavers a line at stories at scan.scot. It's scan, S-C-C-A-N, dot scot, S-C-O-T. We also offer training and mini-grant support to community storytellers. To keep up to date with our offerings and everything SCAN, check out our website at scan.scot or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or simply sign up to the newsletter.